It was the spring of 1975. I am a freshman in my second semester at Biola University. I'm taking a class on the Christian life. It was called Foundations, along with 400 other freshmen in Sutherland Hall. And the professor introduced us to a writer I had never heard of because he preached in the 40s and he wrote a little book called The Normal Christian Life. That author's name was Watchman Nee. Curious if anybody besides me has ever read that. There are seven other Bible readers. And it's a classic, it's not a, but it's a, a, an unbelievable book. And it challenged me to think about what is the normal Christian life all about. It was based on Romans 1 through 8. But it reminded me, because this is pre-Dallas Willard, this is pre-John Ortberg, uh, what is the Christian life supposed to be lived like? In our text today, we're going to look at some of those same principles, but I think I want to frame it for you because there's a continuum in Christianity Day between these two extremes. On one end is the Christian life is about being disciplined and hold people accountable and you got to grow and we got to be all that we could be. And if we're not careful, that can devolve into what Dallas Willard calls as sin management and this kind of performance-oriented kind of Christianity. On the other side of this continuum is kind of the free gospel, free grace movement, which believe me, I believe the gospel is free. But there's kind of like no real accountability, you know, it's all good, you know, we, we, you're forgiven and it's all about grace and there's, there doesn't seem to be a balance. And I want to suggest to you that between those two extremes is where we're headed today. Would you join me? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. We're in part 5 of our series called Rock Solid. And as we look at this idea, last week we talked about authority. And if Pastor Scott could have packed one more point into that message, he would have then talked about authority in the body of Christ. So that's where I'm going to pick that up because we've looked at it in government, workplace, in the marriage, and now we're going to look at it, at it in relationship to one another. So on your notes there, you, I've asked this question, so what should characterize the normal Christian life? In other words, as Christ followers, how do we live once we're believers, then what does the Christian life look like? And there's a lot here for us to unpack, so let's get right to it. I want to suggest to you the normal Christian life has three defining characteristics, and I've put them in your notes for, for you. The first one is self-sacrifice is a part of God's plan. In other words, there's something self-sacrificial about when you're a Christ follower, and he describes that idea in verses 8 to 13. Let me read it to you. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, <clears throat> and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this to you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Verse 10, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're just getting started. And how do you summarize all that? Let me give you one phrase, living in relationship. In other words, what it describes is what is the body life? What does 
the church supposed to look like if we're functioning at our best as God's called us? Now, I want to suggest to you that there's something that's conspicuously absent in this. He's saying, uh, be all these things, harmonious, sympathetic, etc., etc., have unity. But there's a conjunction, a two-letter conjunction that begins with what letter, and it is, what is it that's missing? I, I'm going to see, by the way, I called it a preposition last hour. It's a conjunction. I was corrected by my English majors. What is that two-letter word? If. There's no contingency to this plan. He says, you're to be all those things. Not be all those things if everybody else is kind of cool with you and they're nice to you and they're kind to you and they're not a jerk to you. It says be those things regardless. By the way, isn't that when it's hard to be all those things? When someone doesn't live this way and yet you're still called to love them. Now, we kind of give a free pass for people outside the body of Christ because, you know, well, they're not believers. But I think one of the most embarrassing moments of your life, I'm not saying it is anecdotal, I'm not even saying it's biographical, that you got mad at someone who cut you off on the freeway and then you followed them all the way into our parking lot after you had said some things in your breath and you realized we're going to the same parking lot. Actually, that did happen to me, but it wasn't me. I did the cutting off, and it was on a way to an event with 1,800 junior hires years ago. And I cut this guy off. I didn't see him in my blind spot. He laid on the horn and all this, and I turned right, he turned right, I turned left, he turned left. I go, oh, no, he's stalking me. <laughs> I'm, I'm in for it now. And he pulls into the same venue where this water park was, and thank goodness he wasn't the leader for some youth group that uh, we went our separate ways. But I think there's no, there's no condition here that says that these things shouldn't be part of our experience. So what I thought I'd do, that was a long list of stuff. I mean, I'm worn out just reading it. And so what I thought I'd do today is I just asked you six questions about those, those verses. I put them in writing so you can look at those, and we want to take a personal inventory. We want to do a personal inventory, and I'm just going to ask the question, and then you kind of self-evaluate. And then maybe apply this also to our church and how are we doing as a body? How, is you, how are you doing individually? First of all, he says we should have unity of mind. So I ask the question, will it build community? Is it something that builds harmony by my involvement in it? Now, we're in an incredibly divisive uh, season in uh, politics today, right? And there's, I mean, every... every Spectrum is probably represented here. We have Republicans and Democrats and Unitarians or Libertarians or Vegetarians. I mean, we got them all here, all right? And so the bottom line is, just because you don't agree with someone, you don't have to be cranky about it. Can we uh, kind of, can't we just get all get along kind of syndrome? The bottom line is, being unity of mind doesn't mean we have to agree, but we are called to be agreeable, all right? How are we doing in that one? Number two, do I genuinely comfort, care, and have compassion for others? I've kind of alliterated those words of sympathy, brotherly love, and tender heart. Comfort, care, and compassion. Is that what comes out of our expression with one another? I got to tell you, I'm so proud of you as a, as a body, the way you care for people that are like even outside your comfort zone. Uh, some of you serve very regularly in this this uh, ministry we have tomorrow night, 
on the meal program. You're there every month. You're serving the less fortunate. And that's your ministry. You show tangible love and care for people. But you also show it here in the body of Christ uh, as you reach out when someone needs a ride or can't get someplace, and, and we care for one another. Thirdly, do I view others as more important than myself? He talks about having a humble mind. The idea of our, our proud versus humility. Uh, Philippians 2.3 don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but have this mind which is in Christ Jesus, and it goes on to describe Christ's model for humility. And I, I think about uh, how humbling it's been for one of our families. They, they were here last hour, but the Kisman family lost their home. They live in, in uh, Malibu Lake, and they've been kind of transient. They've rented places, and about three weeks ago, Kelly emailed Pastor Scott and I and said, uh, we're finally in our place, and at this point, it doesn't look like they'll ever get back into a house, at least in the near term. Uh, there was insurance glitch, and things didn't go as planned, and so they're, they're in a two-bedroom apartment after having lived in a home for a number of years, and very humbling. But the email said, we would love to have you and your wives over to be our very first guests, and we want to serve you dinner. That's so cool. The humility and the love they show to one another, not, not complaining, not whining, not shaking their fists at God, but humbly realizing that God's blessing them, not in the way they thought they would be blessed. And thank you for coming around them and others in our church. Number four, do I forgive others rather than seeking revenge and retaliation when I'm wronged? It says, do not repay evil for evil. And this idea of revenge, can I, before I read the scriptures, and that's going to be really convicting, let's just have a little self-reflection uh, here. Is it just me, or is there a time you've really wanted to, like, take revenge on somebody? Anybody? Five of us. Six. <laughs> I'm, I see seven. I'm hoping for ten or more. Yeah, I mean, it's part of our nature. When you say you don't want to take revenge, tell me what it's like when that person did cut you off, uh, etc. Here's what the scripture says. Proverbs 20, 22, do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. There's something about when you are wronged that you want to make it right. And God says, hang on, just wait. First Thessalonians 5, 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable <clears throat> in the sight of all. So wouldn't you know, it's like, you can't just go fly by that verse without the Lord give me a personal opportunity to have to apply this this week. So I've already kind of told you about my kind of cranky neighbor that's lived next to me, and we thought we had it all patched up, and life was good. He hadn't blocked me from texts. And uh, so we've had this little issue. Uh, apparently in Oldagura, there are two things that are true. You don't have streetlights and you don't have curbs, right? And I live right around the corner. And so if you do have a streetlight, you maintain your own streetlight. In fact, it, this light's been out for months. I was trying to get Edison to fix it. They didn't. They, uh, Mr. Irwin, this is your streetlight too. Oh, really? Okay. Eric looked at it. And so I finally got a guy out there, found out there was a bulb and a this and that. So we get the streetlight on and, and now, Voila. We have light, you know, and, and now I can say, when you come to my house, just go to the streetlight, make a right, that's my driveway. Within 12 hours, 
My neighbor inexplicably has taken a floodlight, mounted it on the side of the house so it purposely is aimed at our bedroom window. I kind of think that's retaliation, but I didn't do anything. I mean, I'm so in my flesh. I thought I'd be sarcastic. I thought I'd text him back. I'd say, oh, thank you so much for providing light in my backyard so I know we will never be broken in by a neighbor because it is daylight in my window. (laughs) But that's a little sarcastic, right? I probably can't do that. And so we're praying like what we should do. And of course, Cheryl comes to the rescue. God bless her. She goes, I got this. She goes, I'm going to text him. And the gist of her text was, we finally got our light fixed. We feel so much safer for the people who have to come to our house. They can see our driveway, etc. But I'm wondering if this is bothering you. And if it's a problem, we are willing to just take it out. What are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Mic drop, right? I love to brag about her, but man, she did the right thing. Not escalate it, not take revenge, not, you know, I would have been praying like the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, slay the evildoer, right? <laughs> but, but she's just so kind and considerate and thoughtful. I would like to tell you that there's been a positive response, but there's been no response. But we still got to show love. We got to be kind. All right? Well, we can take that to heart. Number five, do I speak the truth and avoid gossip? Look at verse 10. Keep your tongue from evil and these lips that speak deceit. So I think there are two areas of application. And I'm not suggesting that one is more gender specific than the other, but I'm going to talk about gossip and I'm going to talk about negative sarcasm. If in generality, as we said, a gender uh, struggles with one of the other, Who is the group that might, in this audience, be a little bit more into negative kidding? Is it the ladies or is it the men? Oh, the men said men and we own it, all right? And I'm saying that probably the ladies get off the hook because we all gossip, all right? But the negative sarcasm is something I kind of wanted to put to, to rest here. I think that it says, keep your tongue from evil. What's evil is when we put other people down, when we are negative. There's so much negativity about everybody and everything, and we want to just speak the truth in love and avoid gossip. Next, number six, do I promote peace? Verse 11, turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. How do we pursue peace in the body of Christ? I want to suggest this is one very practical tip. Believe the best about each other's intentions and don't assume the worst. Believe the best about each other. And so it's interesting that this idea of harmony in the church is a big idea in the New Testament. And he always, uh, the writers always assume that there is unity, so we maintain unity. We maintain it. How do we do that? Don't hold grudges. Believe the best. Don't assume the worst. Melanchthon, how many of you have heard that name as long as we're talking about old dead guys? Anybody? Melanchthon? Okay, he's a colleague of Augustine, or Martin Luther, and he worked on the Augsburg Confession. He wrote this famous little ditty. It said this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And that's a good thing for us to follow as we promote peace, both corporately and in our own lives. Now, in light of all that, I want to suggest that God is watching how we're doing. 
And I want to give you a little insight here. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. See, some of you grew up in environments where I think God was that cosmic killjoy that didn't want you to have any fun. And in fact, if he is watching you, he's watching you like the Sandy Claus ditty to see if you're getting it right, if you've been good or bad. And that just in case you're messing up, he's really there to squash you with his kind of, uh, his, his crush you. I, I don't know how else to say it. And some of you grew up in environments where God to you was something like, ah. Uh, All I do is go to confession or I've got to just, I'm always kind of wondering. And maybe that's your experience. But I got to tell you, the God that Peter's talking about is a God of provision. Write this down. God of provision and protection, not punishment. Now, there is a consequence for those who reject Christ. And you'll you'll face the Lord someday. But for the the normal Christian life experience, you've got a God who's loving you, looking down at you, wanting to bless you, provide for you, and protect you. In fact, most of the directives, the imperatives of Scripture are either for your protection or your provision, not to keep you from enjoying life. And so that's the kind of of God is watching us. And by the way, this is a common theme. Uh, 2 Chronicles 16.9 is one of my favorite Old Testament verses. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are completely his, or give strong support, as it says in the ESV. And so that's the kind of God that hears your prayers. Now, the second principle of the normal Christian life is that suffering is part of the package. You said, oh, no, I could have gone all year without hearing that suffering is part of the package. Are you kidding me? But we shouldn't be surprised if you're living that kind of Christ-like embodiment. If, If those characteristics are true of your life, some people misinterpret that and say, well, who does he think he is? He's such a goody two-shoes, we shouldn't be surprised that not everyone will be, quote, for us. In fact, quite frankly, some will be not fans at all. And we might get some pushback from an unbelieving world that says, huh, not so sure about this whole Christianity thing. So what is the playbook for this kind of lifestyle uh, when we face persecution or suffering? I want to suggest three things from the text. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled or agitated. In other words, expect it, but don't fear it. There is going to be some times where there's trials and suffering in the Christian life, and it's not a matter of if. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of when it's going to happen. Now, by show of hands, one little more audience participation thing here. If anybody has had any trial or suffering of any kind, and I'll let you make that definition as broadly as you can, whether it's health, spiritually, emotionally, family, financially, in the workplace, had any kind of trial or suffering, I would like you to boldly raise your hand. Yes, I have experienced that in, I've given you 365 days. (laughs) Right, raise them, let's see. I'm wondering if anybody has led some kind of a charmed life, because I want to come and live with you, (laughs) right? We've all been through it, right? We've all been through it, and it isn't, isn't it interesting? It's during those difficult seasons of life, who are you crying out to? You're crying out to God. You're pleading to God. 
you are probably closer to God in the valleys of your life than in the, in the mountaintops of your life. So expect it, but don't fear it. Uh, when I was a senior pastor in Moore Park back in 2008, one of the things I enjoyed was I had no Sunday night service. It's also something I enjoyed that we have no Sunday night service here at ABF, which is unusual for a Baptist church. Um, and so uh, we, uh, I used to get to maybe visit somewhere. So I went to check out this growing mega church in Simi Valley by the name of Cornerstone Church. And back in 2008, a little known writer, preacher, speaker by the name of Francis Chan was preaching. And I noticed the title and hundreds of college students would pack out the church on Sunday night. So I went with some of our college kids, and I'm listening to this sermon, and the title of the sermon was very simple. It said, Suffering. I said, okay, well, he'll hit a couple of the high points and give us a strategy for dealing with suffering. Oh, contraire. He started in the book of Genesis, I kid you not, and went through every single, 66 books of the Bible, and for 70, you think I preached long? 72 minutes. I counted. I kept track. 72 minutes, and I wasn't looking at my watch except for the fact that this is unbelievable because I had never heard, I'd never seen the theological theme of suffering through the entire Bible. Now, Christian, I realize that you want to claim John 10.10. I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. I want the abundant life, but with the abundant life comes times where we got to realize part of what the Christian life involves is suffering. So hang on. Don't sweat it. God's got this. If Paul is the apostle of faith and John is the apostle of love, I believe what we're seeing in Peter that Peter's the apostle of hope because he's, gonna t- he's talking about things that we all experience. Secondly, if you're going to suffer, there are people who are going to push back theologically with you. So look at this verse in verse 15. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole of 1 Peter. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, set apart, always being prepared to make a defense or an account to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So when you're asked, be ready with answers. When you're asked, be ready with answers. And there's two parts to this verse. There is a stand up and there's a speak up. The stand up part is for you to stand up for Jesus. Do not be intimidated that you haven't had to, you shouldn't be thinking, well, I had to check my brain at the door to be a Christ follower. No, you don't. We just spent five weeks uh, asking for a friend. That series hopefully equipped you to give you confidence that you have a reasonable faith and that there's answers to the critics, right? And if you haven't, uh, if many of you got to be a part of this workshop we did, that we did a follow-up uh, with Bill Berry. And so be ready, stand up, make him the Lord of your life. Don't be ashamed. Honor him. Honor God as you talk about him. To others. But then there's a speak up play of part, and that's literally that word defense is the same word used of a plea of an attorney. And we have a few attorneys in here. It's, you're a defense attorney. But he says you're not to argue. What does he say? How are we supposed to treat and talk to people who have questions about the faith? With what two adjectives? With what? Gentleness and respect. You can 
debate and talk in the marketplace of ideas, and you can do it in a way that's winsome. You don't have to be combative. In fact, I'm not even sure winning the argument should be the goal. I think the idea is win the person, not win. It's not a chess game. So in that, that apologetics practicum, we were challenged to share the gospel with someone who didn't know Jesus. Well, um, the dutiful pastor I am and the rule keeper, you know, I, I should do these things, right? I can't come back to the class next week and have a big goose egg like, no, I, I, I sat in my office and studied for this sermon and <laughs> talked about evangelism and prayed about evangelism. So I said, I got to do it. So most of you know uh, I'm an avid racquetball player and I play a lot, all right? And I've met now, I think, 24 different people at LA Fitness in the last 14 months. Well, one of them was my friend Brett, and we've been playing for, a, for several months now. Really nice guy. And so I just asked him one day after racquetball, kind of took the Bill Berry challenge, and I said, hey, do you mind to, I got a few questions, can I ask you a few questions? You had mentioned, and he talked about his, you know, daughter had visited Pacific Crossroads, which is a church, uh, I believe, in Santa Monica, and, and uh, I, I said, but you didn't mention that you went there, do, do, do you ever go to church? And he goes... Well, I kind of used to, uh, but, you know, I got busy and this and that. And we got into this conversation about kind of how he had kind of not gone to church. I said, um, do you mind if I just tell you a little bit about what God's done in my life? And I said it that plainly. He said, do, he said oh, no, like, done, uh, I'm, I'm, no. He said, yeah. And so we just sat there on the bench and I shared with him what Christ did in my life and how he saved me. And I just simply shared the gospel in less than four minutes. He said, thanks. That, that, you've given me something to think about. I said, man, I think maybe this is the time of your life, you know, you've been able to retire at age 57. Maybe this is more time for you to explore where spirituality and a relationship with Jesus Christ might fit in your life. He kind of nodded his head and he goes, I got to think about that. So, little seed, little thought, just talk. Nobody had sweaty palms. Nobody had a gun to the head. It was just talking about the natural difference that Christ makes in our life. Now, I want to encourage you. Look at me, every one of you. In the famous phrase of some little midget guy on an island, you can do it, right? <laughs> you can do this. Four of you got that one. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you can do it. It's just take that risk. Open your mouth. I look at so many of you that do that naturally. Matt McCormick does that naturally. You say, well, I'm not Matt McCormick. I'm not a natural evangelist. But he has called you to share the good news of what Christ's doing. That's what it is. Just share what God's doing in your life, all right? Next, live above reproach, because if you're going to open your mouth for Jesus, here's what better be true. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, don't give your opponents opportunity to attack Christianity because your lifestyle or your character is so incongruent with the Christian message, right? Don't give your critics ammunition. 
just do the right thing. And sometimes when doing the right things, you're not going to be treated well. You will suffer. What you don't want is to bring it on yourself because you did something stupid. No offense, but sometimes we suffer because we just do stupid things. And, may, and we you know, blame everybody else, but when we kind of brought it on ourselves. So he's saying, it's better just, just suffer for doing good. All right? Now, if that is true and that suffering is part of the package, we can handle this in the normal Christian life because of the third principle, and that's this. That salvation is through Jesus, and that is the promise we cling to. Suffering may be part of the package, but salvation through Jesus is the promise. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that's reconciliation, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And so, Number one, he purchased our salvation. Christ's death on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. Now, I'm guessing that probably 90% of you in this room have given your life to Christ. You've made a decision. We've talked about the gospel numerous times over the number eight years that I've been here. But maybe for some of you, this is new, new territory. So I want to be clear what it means to be a Christ follower here in just a moment. So he purchased our salvation. There's a theological term for that, and that is he is our substitutionary atonement. You say, what does that mean? In other words, he took your place. So if you, in fact, are a sinner, which Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin, and Romans 6.23, for the wage of sin is death, he took your place. He took that penalty, that punishment on his back. So how did, what did he do about that? This is a very next interesting couple of verses. Secondly, he not only purchased our salvation, he proclaimed victory over death. Look at verses 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? We'll find out. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What in the world is that? This is one of the most interesting rabbit trail, bunny trails that I'm going to be very disciplined. I see the time. I'm going to give it two minutes, I hope. Spirits in prison literally means descended to the place of the dead. So what happens after Jesus dies in the three days where he's in the tomb? Parts of three days, for those of you who deal with apologetics, any day of a day was part of a day, even if it was only one minute on Friday, 24 hours on Saturday, and one minute on Sunday. Christ was probably in the tomb somewhere in the vicinity of 36 hours, but it counts as three days. What did he do between that and the resurrection? He said something and gave us a hint. On the cross, to the thief, on the, one of the thieves on the cross, he said, today you will see me in paradise. Is that heaven? No, that's a different term. So what is paradise? Well, in, the Old Te- in both, both Testaments, and in fact, in the New Testament, it talks about para- paradise um, or um, a, a broader group, a broader area called Sheol. You say Sheol, and Sheol had two parts. One was paradise, or what we call Abraham's bosom, and torments. You say, well, what are these two compartments? By the way, Sheol wasn't hell. That's Gehenna, the place of eternal conscious suffering that will happen at the end of of our time on earth if you are far from Christ or uh, or, or have rejected Christ. So after his death and before his resurrection, his spirit goes to, 
to Hades, to the place of the dead, Acts 2.31, and in those, they could see each other, they could converse with one another, um, that everyone who had died prior to Christ's resurrection went to Hades, and there's a communication that occurs in this, and you say, I have never heard this. Check out Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, and my two minutes are up, and I'll just leave you hanging. All right, so I got to answer this question. Who are the spirits, though? Who, are, who is he talking? Well, we know where they are, but who are those people made up of? So there are a couple of popular views. Uh, on the torment side, it's those people who had rejected God. On the paradise side, uh, it's those people who their faith was reckoned as righteousness, right? The Old Testament saints. A third view or another view is who the spirits are are those fallen angels, go back to Isaiah 14, that, say, uh, that God cast out of heaven and they're in the temporary holding pen. And what he's proclaiming is, hey guys, you thought by putting me to death on the cross that you won? Ah, contraire, because I'm going to rise from the dead and it is game over for you guys, right? What I think, unfortunately, some other faith traditions have taken this, they've called this place purgatory, and they believe that you get a second chance by atoning for your bad behavior. An Eastern version of that would be called what? Karma or reincarnation. Both are out of bounds biblically. Here's what I know. You got one shot at this, friends. As you are living and breathing, there is a chance for everybody in this room to make a decision for God. And when you die, contrary to popular opinion in the book, Love Wins, there is no second chance. God is loving, but there are consequences for our choices. And I don't want that to feel harsh or uncompassionate or uncaring, because God loves you so much, he died for you. And he offers something that's absolutely incredible, in essence, a money-back guarantee that you cannot walk away from, but hundreds and unfortunately thousands do. And so the conclusion of this is what's most important is you got one shot at this and God's offering you to. Today is the day. And if you've been one of those folks who've been here for a number of weeks, months, or even years and have never placed your faith in Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to let you have a chance to do that today. Well, the third thing it says here then is that baptism identifies us with Christ and the power, the power of his resurrection. Verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Now, they say, what, baptism saves you? No, he's referring to Noah's ark, the baptism in the ark. The ark saved Noah and everybody else from death, obviously, in fact, it's not baptism just because, you, you know, the ceremonial washing that would happen uh, with the Jewish rituals of that day. But what saves you? Go down. What saves you is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says that Noah's salvation through the water was symbolized by being saved in that ark. Our ark today that saves us is the death of Jesus Christ and our trusting alone in him for our salvation and when we have that, here's what we know in verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God 
with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Remember we started last week with authority? We end this week with authority. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And our worship team is going to come, and I want to give you a chance to, to think this through, to think about, is Christ the Lord of your life? We've talked all about the gospel that's been hinted at through this, but as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, I want you to think about you and God. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads. If you have never given your life over to Jesus Christ, and although I think probably 90% of you in this room probably have, I'm wondering if some of you are saying, "Ah, I'm not sure. And this is just between you and me. Right now you say, I don't think I've actually made that decision. I'm not even saying that you're ready today, but you're saying, I gotta think through what it means to be a Christ follower. Would you look up at me? Okay, fair enough. Anybody else? You're not sure exactly what all that means. Okay. Anybody else? I'm not going to make you come forward. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to sign anything. But I'm going to offer this prayer of salvation. It's a simple prayer. If you just repeat that in your mind and in your heart as I say it, you can go from death to life to being lost, to being found. And it goes something like this. Heavenly Father, I need you. I know that I'm separated from you because of my sin. I acknowledge that I am incapable of, quote, saving myself. And I need a savior. And I trust and I cling to and I rely on the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, to be my substitute. And that God offers his hand of forgiveness to me. And Lord, I accept that free gift of eternal life. I want to be a part of your family. I want to be in relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. And if that was your prayer today, Welcome to God's family. I would love to hear about it. I'd love for you to come and talk to me about it. Or if you're unsure, you say, I wasn't ready to pray that today, but I sure do have other questions I'd like to talk to someone about. Man, don't hesitate to call, to email, to text. And we'll sit for as long as you want and talk about all those questions. Deal? Let's sing about what he's done as we close. couldn't have picked a better song to wrap up that message because he is calling you. And if you'd like to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you're just kind of stuck, we want to help you get unstuck today. We have some folks that will be coming up to pray with you. I'll be up here to talk about anything you've heard today. God bless you. We're so glad you're here today. And I hope you leave with the idea that
God is a part of a promise to you that is unmistakable and undeniable, and he can make a difference in your life. Amen? Have a great day. We'll see you later.